I've got my rock and my water bottle. Good morning, church family. It's good to be together with you, and I want to welcome also those who are taking part in our service online. My name is Bill Oberlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Wheaton Bible. And as I begin, I want to share a, a picture with you, a photo with you. Last Sunday, we recognized our Asian American members, and this Thursday, we were heartened by guests from a church in Korea who asked if they could come and pray for us as a congregation. As you and I pray for the church around the world, it's a lift to know that the church around the world is praying for us that we would live up to our calling in Christ Jesus here in our culture. Uh, this morning we continue in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. So far in the series, we've read of Jesus' birth, his baptism, last week his temptation in the wilderness, and now as we continue in Matthew chapter 4, we witness the beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. As I've reflected on this passage, I'm struck by three things. The courage of Jesus, the call of Jesus, and the compassion of Jesus. And I've been given my assignment as a preacher this morning with the help of the Holy Spirit to comfort the afflicted and also to afflict the comfortable. All right, well, let's jump in. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. As he began his public ministry, Jesus was all too aware of unpredictable and lethal Jewish kings. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great ordered a slaughter of infant boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to eliminate any new rival king. Mary and Joseph fled with their child to Egypt to escape. Like me, do you forget that as a toddler, Jesus was a refugee? We read in Luke 3 uh, about uh, an incident not long after Jesus' baptism. Uh, shortly after Jesus was baptized, around age 30, John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod Antipas, who ruled the region surrounding the Jordan River following the death of his father, Herod the Great. John's integrity and rising influence threatened the younger Herod's reputation and rule. And we read in Luke 3 that John publicly rebuked Herod because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and all the other evil things that Herod had done. Herod added this to his list of evil. He locked up John in prison. Well, if you know more about the story, you know that Herodias, the stolen wife, nursed a grudge that eventually resulted in John's beheading at a banquet. You know, sometimes we 
act as if the Bible is boring. I think we need to read more of it. Lust, intrigue, murder, love, forgiveness, restored relationships, really Netflix doesn't compete. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that Herod imprisoned John at his fortress in Machiris near the Dead Sea. Jesus, understanding his mission and the things that needed to happen before he would go to the cross, distanced himself from Herod's fortress uh, on the Dead Sea and went a hundred miles north into Galilee on the opposite end of the Jordan River. We read on in Matthew, verse 13, Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was one of the the prophets of Israel uh, who lived uh, more than 700 years before the time of Christ but wrote of the things to come in the intervening years, at the time of Christ's birth and beyond. Matthew references a verse in Isaiah 9 that is is familiar to all of us as as a warm passage that we hear at Christmas. But to really comprehend the joy and radiance of the announcement we need to understand the context it's drawn from. So if we back up a chapter in Isaiah chapter 8, we see the prophet Isaiah records, because this people, meaning the people of Israel, have rejected the gently flowing rivers of Shiloh, meaning the place to come and worship and meet with God. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria in all his pomp and arrogance. He will sweep into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. We see in this map, in a 30-year war, armies from the city of Asher in present-day Iraq conquered Damascus and Syria, the northern tribes of Israel and Samaria, and all of the land of Judea with the exception of the capital of Jerusalem. Israel suffered devastation and deprivation under Assyria. But cheer up, it gets worse. A century later, Jerusalem itself would fall to Babylon with many of the people being taken into captivity in the Babylonian capital. In turn, Israel would be dominated by Persia, then Greece, then Rome during the time of Jesus' birth. The outcome of the invasion, the exile, the occupation... Isaiah says, this is where the people will be. Distressed and hungry, the people will roam through the land. They will become enraged and looking upward, curse their king and their God. 
Then they will look down toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. But Isaiah 9 anticipates a stark reversal. Nevertheless, even so, there will be an end to the gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way of the sea, along the Jordan, the people walking in darkness will see a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. In this map, we see what Isaiah is referring to, the ancient tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in, in the north of Israel. And in Jesus' day, what was called uh, Galilee. How is this gloom lifted? What's the source of this inbreaking of light? Well, don't you know? Haven't you heard? To us a son is born. To us a child is given. And the government will one day rest on his capable shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But make no mistake, it would not be safe to be the Savior. We see Jesus' prudence in distancing himself from Herod alongside his courage as he picks up the refrain that John had announced. We read in the scriptures, from that time on, Jesus began to preach as John had preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Maybe you haven't noticed, but calling people to repent isn't always embraced warmly. In fact, it's not always embraced warmly by me. Mark 1.15 says, Jesus' message, again, was, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come within reach. Repent and believe the good news. God in his grace is breaking into our dysfunction and unholy history, shining light into our darkness, displacing despair with hope. His authority restoring and straightening. His authority moving and making things right. God is bowing to bring heaven within reach of us. To repent means to have a change of heart and mind. As I've been traveling this direction, to turn and to go a different direction. Repentance is the only logical response 
to this transforming offer of kindness by our Creator. But you and me, we balk. We're convinced it's okay to continue as is. I can make it on my own. We're delusional that we make better rulers of our lives than God could possibly be. And certainly my destiny will not be utter darkness, will it? But John and Jesus urge us to turn, to respond, to embrace the truth and walk in the light. Because the most magnanimous gift does you no good if you refuse it. Or simply leave it unopened. Jesus taught us to pray for the kingdom of heaven to come near. Our Father who is in heaven, you who dwells in the beauty and perfection of, of a different, a higher realm of reality, hallowed be your name. May your name be honored regarded as as holy, revered. May your kingdom come, meaning may your reign and rule break in and be realized in our mundane human lives. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you reduce the discrepancy between what you desire in heaven and what we do on earth. Lord, redirect our broken human history. Christ's assignment would require unparalleled courage. Following Christ will require courage on your part as well, I should let you know. Authentic Christianity is not for sissies. Now, I have to admit I've never heard a sermon on it but it's in the Bible. Revelation 21.8 tells us the cowardly cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There's risk and change involved. Well, we touched on the courage of Jesus. I want to turn now to the call of Jesus. We read in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Peter and Simon. He said to them, come and follow me. And at once they left their nets and followed. Going on, he saw two other brothers, James and John. He said the same thing to them. Uh, And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Without further context, this episode seems kind of strange. I mean, it seems really sudden, kind of hard to imagine. Did Jesus simply stroll by a couple of strangers at their work and say, hey, we're not acquainted, but drop everything and come and follow me? And were they crazy enough to do that? What were they thinking? Um... My wife Kelly and I like to watch the NBC series, uh, This Is Us. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's about this family 
uh, Jack and Rebecca Pearson and their uh, three kids, Randall, Kevin, and Kate. Actually, the, the show is a little bit like us uh, because our family is a family that includes adoption and, and family members of, of varying skin tones and personalities. But the show is filled with glimpses into both the past and the future. You're always seeing these episodes of something that happened before, something that happened later. But as you see those other episodes, then, oh, now I get it. It makes sense. It fits together. And in fact, as we look at the other Gospels, we realize that Jesus' connection with Andrew and Peter at the beach wasn't a first meeting. In John chapter 1, we get the backstory of an earlier encounter. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When the two disciples of John heard John say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, what is it you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, Jesus replied, and you'll see. And those two disciples of John the Baptist spent their first day with Jesus. Andrew was one of the two. The first thing Andrew did was to go find his brother Simon and tell him, I think maybe we've met the Messiah. And Andrew brought Peter to meet Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to Philip, follow me. Philip like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael, his friend, and said, we found the one Moses wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth? Nathanael replied, can anything good come from there? Well, come and see, Philip said. As I think about these passages, it occurs to me that the kingdom of God often advances among friends over bridges of trust. Andrew trusted John the Baptist as his teacher and learned from him, heard from him, uh, but then he went and told what he had learned to his brother Peter. And then they had connection with their homies from Bethsaida. And pretty soon there's a cluster of people who are following Jesus. You know, I've seen this repeated in, in unusual places. Uh, our church has a, a connection with a group of young believers in a North African country that is... Uh, predominantly Muslim, uh, but these young adults are followers of Jesus, and it started with a group of about 15, but over the last seven years, it has grown to over a thousand young adults, almost all of whom are the first Christ followers in their families. 
In Luke's gospel, we find the calling of the disciples by the lake in further detail. We read in Luke 5, one day as Jesus was standing by Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw boats at the water's edge uh, as the fishermen were there washing their nets. Jesus got into one of the boats, which happened to belong to Simon or Peter, and asked him to push it out a little from shore. And there Jesus taught the people in, in a natural amphitheater. Them standing along the beach, him being pushed off a bit uh, in the boat. Jesus sat down and taught the people. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Hey, Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets, and you'll get a catch. Simon answered, "Um, Not so sure about that. We worked hard all night. We caught zip. In other words, yeah, you're the rabbi, but guess who's the fisherman? But I love Peter's conclusion on the matter. Peter says, but because you say so, I will. Is that sentence descriptive of you? Because Jesus says so, I will. Peter had seen and heard enough of Jesus to trust that even if it runs counter to my thinking and inclinations, I will defer to Jesus' discernment and request. The story continues in Luke 5. When they had done so, The fishermen caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat, come, help us. They came and filled both boats so that they were both on the verge of sinking. When Simon saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful person. He and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish. So were James and John, who happened to be Peter's business partners. But it hit Peter like a ton of bricks. Maybe a ton of tilapia. Jesus is other. He is of a wholly and wholly different nature. In awe and fear, he calls Jesus kurios, which means master or Lord, and confesses, Jesus, I really don't belong in the same boat with you. You ever feel like that? I really don't belong in the same boat with Jesus. But I love Jesus' reply. Simon, don't be afraid. 
from now on, you're going to be catching people. What else could they do? What is the only reasonable response? So they pulled their boats up on shore, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. We see in these episodes two invitations. Come and see and follow me. So if you don't know much about this Jesus, if you're conflicted of what to make of him, the king invites you, well, come and see. Explore. Uh, my friend arrived from Afghanistan this August around the same time we were watching in the news the Kabul airport. And he's been working, uh, living and working here in the States for a few months and, and last April he said to me, you know, I went to work the other day and people kept saying to me, Happy Easter. He said, what is Easter? And I explained a bit to him, and, and I offer, also offered him a New Testament, and he said, no thanks. But a couple weeks later, he told me, you know, I think I would like a copy of that book. Because I'd like to read for myself. Come and see. Make a decision to move from ignorance to knowing and then from knowing to consider where do I go from here. And if you find sufficient evidence, if you see that Jesus is other, will you follow him? In your move, uh, if you're persuaded that he is the one prophets wrote about, that he is the Lamb of God who carries away all our sins, if Jesus is in fact God Almighty come to us wrapped in humanity, if as my Arabic friends say, he is Amir Salam, the Prince of Peace, will you follow him? If the Holy Spirit whispers to you that Jesus is who he said he is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, will you, to quote Carrie Underwood, ask Jesus to take the wheel? Now, I'm not sure exactly how his call might come to you, but it makes sense to me that the God who gave you unique fingerprints and irises different from every other person on the planet is capable of communicating with you in ways you personally can understand and respond to. Jesus doesn't call you to blind faith, but to come and see to consider and learn, and then to put your faith in someone who knows and sees far beyond our blindness. And following can require releasing our grasp on possessions and privileges 
and inferior priorities. But would you risk such an adventure for a far greater reward? I want to touch uh, finally on the compassion of Jesus. We read that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching, announcing the good news, healing every kind of disease and infirmity among people, those with severe pain, those who were possessed by evil spirits, those who had seizures, were paralyzed. Jesus healed them and large crowds from the whole surrounding area followed him. As we see this map of the Galilee area, uh, we should recognize that Jesus' impact and influence wasn't confined to what we know as Israel. It touched people of Lebanon, of Syria, of Jordan. God came to us in Jesus to communicate in word and deed life to be with us in our suffering, to help us in our helplessness, to heal us in ways we cannot heal ourselves. As I think about the miracles of Jesus, none of them were for show, but they all met the deepest immediate needs of desperate fellow humans needing His intervention and mercy. We understand as well that Jesus' invitation to us becomes the King's invitation through us. If you matter to God, then so does every other human around you. You've never locked eyes with a person who's a low priority to the Good Shepherd. Jesus taught his disciples to participate in bringing the kingdom of heaven near to others. It's unthinkable that those of us who've been called by Jesus would fail to be infected by his compassion for others or neglect to let others in on the secret that God has come to us in Christ, that we would be indifferent to offer help and healing when we have the capacity to do it. I want to tell you just a little bit about um, some friends of mine. Um, This past April, Lisa and Osama spent 10 days in Ukraine. Lisa is from Ukraine. Her brother is a pastor there. Osama's originally from Egypt. You might guess by his name that, that following Christ wasn't uh, the faith of his childhood, but it's, it's most definitely the faith of his life now. And they carried with them, traveling on their own dime, supplies that they had purchased with, with the help of others, In Ukraine, they met with other believers in homes and churches and and repacked and distributed uh, the things that everyone brought together. And then they went out to to hard-hit areas delivering food, milk, medicine, baby supplies, and Bibles. In some cases, they helped evacuate people 
from dangerous places. They visited those who were sick. They met and prayed with survivors in a place you might have heard of called Bucha. Why does somebody do something like this? I think they can't help it. I think they're just living out what it means to naturally follow the Savior that they trust and join in bringing the kingdom near for others. I want to give you a chance to see a, a brief video of one other couple from Wheaton Bible Church who has given their life uh, for decades to the ministry of compassion among others. Mike and Peggy Lowe. Mike and Peggy, thank you so much for taking a few minutes today just to sit down and talk. For our friends listening in, uh, introduce yourselves. We've been second career missionaries with Wheaton Bible Church since 2007. We served for about seven and a half years over in Greece with Hellenic Ministries, and then in Panama for four years um, with Reach Global. I was born and raised in Wheaton, Illinois. So we left when I was 48 and Mike was 50. Um, Mike had seen other parts of the world, but during that time I was home with the kids. So um, yeah, it was huge. It was interesting to go from um, just feeling so secure in your own um, culture to a total different culture. So I've probably been going on mission trips short term for probably 20, 25 years before we got into missions. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming home all the time saying, Peggy, I think maybe God's calling us into full-time ministry. And I had always thought I was pretty confident and could get around, but not knowing the language or the mm -hmm. money or directions was super challenging. You know, one thing I always tell people is that, you know, like the last 14, 15 years that we've been involved in missions, it's probably been the most rewarding part of our life. The Lord has allowed us to be part of what he's doing. Just a couple of ordinary people. We don't have exactly. any great skills, mm -hmm. but yeah. um, it's fun how God's been able to use what he's given us. Sometimes we look at other people and we think, yeah, here are some people who need some help and their lives need to be changed. Part of the reality is the Lord looks at us and says, yeah, that's true of you, Bill. There are some things I want to change in you. I think that's one of the greatest things about being a missionary is how God changes us. Yeah. You know, you go and you think at the start that you're going to save the world. Yeah. And um, sometimes I think us missionaries are the most broken people and we are the most, it, the people that God wants to fix mm -hmm. the most. So it's such a privilege. He works and changes our heart. And I just see how this all fits together so well in how he's gifted you, he's given you experience, you have skills and spiritual gifts to serve in this role uh, with Reach Global in uh, crisis care team. Talk about what this ministry is 
Um, what's the concept of this, this ministry? And tell us about your first assignment. Well, our first assignment is actually in Paradise, California. Uh, we're going out to an area that was um, hit really hard with fire. It engulfed the whole town and um, I think 85 people died in this fire. Mm. It's kind of unheard of that, you know, a fire like that would kill that many people, but it really came onto the town really quickly. And mm -hmm. so it's not only these people have lost everything, but they've also lost friends, they've lost relatives, they've lost their mates or even their children. Crisis Response was born after Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And um, the team just went and ministered there and saw a real mission field that mm -hmm. arrives in the wake of every crisis. People mm -hmm. are wondering, they've lost everything. It's yeah. just like, where is God? How is this possible? Why? And it just leaves a place for a mission field. This is a long-term thing in cooperation with the local church, but yet you can really use and benefit from short-term teams. Yep. Oh, yeah. A lot of our process is through the short-term teams because really uh, people get excited when people from outside of their community come in and help them mm -hmm. rebuild their houses or their mm -hmm. lives or just even willing to listen to mm -hmm. them, you know? And so we're hoping that, you know, we can get some GO teams that mm -hmm. will come out and assist us in, um, it's actually just the tools, you know, it's a tool. It's another tool yeah. in order to reach a person's life and, and be able to make a difference, you know. Well, church, I'm, I'm glad that we could hear a bit of Mike and Peggy's uh, story. They asked, would you send a team? Uh, here you see a picture of 11 members of our church who arrived yesterday to serve alongside them in rebuilding homes, in hearing people's stories, in being Christ's ambassadors to extend His kingdom and bring it within reach of others. So church, thank you for hearing and responding. Uh, yeah. Uh, we want to now transition to communion. And I want you to take a, a few moments as we prepare our hearts to consider the words of Jesus, who was criticized for being a friend of sinners. Jesus reply, well, you know, it's not the healthy, but the sick who need a doctor. I didn't show up to call the supposed righteous, but sinners to repentance, to offer healing to those who are broken. If you're here uh, today and, and you're in the come and see mode. We are delighted and honored that you are here. Uh, but we would respectfully ask uh, that until you come to the place of I'm ready to follow, that, 
that you would hold off on participating in, in communion. But if you've taken that step, if you've made that decision to follow Christ, I want you to prepare your heart to come to his table. This is not the table of Wheaton Bible Church. This is not the table of a denomination or organization. This is Jesus inviting you to his table. So take a few moments to reflect and then we will receive the elements. Jesus, thank you for coming to us. We need a doctor. Thank you for laying down your very life for us that we might be pardoned and restored in loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. Lord, we remember that on the night uh, you had your final dinner with your disciples in that intimate moment, you held up a loaf of bread and broke it saying, this is my body which will be broken for you. And he invited them to eat the bread. And then Jesus held up a cup saying, this cup represents the new promise, the new covenant in my blood, which will be shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many, 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 many people. And all the disciples drank from the cup. Lord, we thank you again for this reminder of your love and sacrifice for us. And we are grateful that you have put the Holy Spirit within our hearts to be your presence with us always. In your name we pray.